urban parks are really important habitats for these migrating birds. You are listening to Urban Wildlife Hi, podcast listeners. We've divided our bird migration episode into two parts. Part one is the part where we look at research into how migrating birds interact with cities. We hope you enjoy it so much that you listen to part two next. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, sitting with... Tony Crowsdam. And with... Keith Russell. Keith, really quick, what's your title? Uh, my title is Program Manager for Urban Conservation. I work for Audubon, Pennsylvania, which is a state program of the National Audubon Society. We were just debating whether Keith's proper title is the godfather of Philly birding. Um, <laughs> he sounds like a crime boss. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the, the um, heart of Philly birding. Yes. So in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, the problems, problems connected to birds migrating through cities. I'll put it generally that way. And specifically, in a few minutes, you're going to hear interviews with Jeff Bueller and Jamie McLaren talking about some of their research on how artificial light at night affects birds during migration. You can read more about their research um, in an article they published January 2018 in Ecology Letters called Artificial Light at Night Confounds Broad-Scale Habitat Use by Migrating Birds. We're also going to hear from Nikki Cagle at Duke University, and she'll talk about their bird window collision research and how they use iNaturalist as a citizen science tool to collect data on window collisions. If you like our podcast, please rate us highly on your podcast listening platform of choice. Please leave a review, tell people how much you love it, tell your friends about it, tell your neighbors about it. Even if it's not online social media, you can just tell them. Um, let them know about the podcast and hopefully more people listen to it. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at urbanwildlifecast. Find us on Facebook. Lots of great ways to get in touch and tell us what you think we should be talking about, even if it's your research. We'd love to feature that if it's urban nature research of any kind. So we hope to hear from you. To set this up, I want to ask Keith a really basic question. What's bird migration? Like when we talk about birds migrating, people might have some vague sense that that some birds disappear and then they come back, but maybe not a good knowledge of where they go and what's the process like? Well, birds migrate um, basically because they occupy habitats that they may not be able to use throughout the entire calendar year. And so if those habitats change and there are resources that they need there that they can't get, for example, a bird is in a deciduous forest in the summer and then it becomes winter and there are no insects for them to eat or other food sources that are available in the summer, they'll migrate to another area um, to get those resources. So land birds migrate, water birds migrate, oceanic birds migrate, lots of different species of birds migrate. And um, then there are non-migratory birds uh, like northern cardinals, house sparrows, and other common birds in our area that can get the resources they need to survive all year round. They can deal with changing temperatures, they can deal with changing food sources, and um, they have no need to migrate. But among the migratory species, uh, again, there are land birds, water birds, oceanic birds, and some birds migrate short distances, 
they may only go a hundred a couple hundred miles some birds may migrate only a couple hundred miles only a couple hundred <laughs> miles um, some birds may migrate altitudinally so those are the short distance migrants I'm talking about they may go up I don't think a couple hundred miles is altitudinal migration but that's a really short um, distance when they go you know up and down a mountain between seasons sure good point and then you have birds that go a couple hundred miles and all the way up to thousands and thousands of miles so um, some birds migrate in incredibly long distances and um, it's an incredible feat that you know involves senses and abilities that humans don't have so it's fascinating to us to think about how these birds do this and we're still learning a lot about what they use the cues that they use to be able to migrate i remember tony you've like talked about it that like a lot of our birds are really tropical birds that just come up here to to nest yeah like um the a lot of these birds them especially like in, insectivorous birds like warblers and tanagers and vireos they're only up here for three months and then and they spend the rest of the year the bulk of the time in the tropics or getting in between so you know we think of these birds as our birds but they're, they're really like panama's birds yeah yeah belize <laughs> a wood thrush spends way more time in belize than it does in in pennsylvania and, yeah yeah so that's you know i think pretty, pretty interesting ways to look at it. i think you know we're trying to figure out how they evolved this i think a lot of it was they followed um rich, the glaciers up Habitat was exposed, and they're you know they fought they followed treating glaciers and retained the the um, so like in peak glaciation fifteen or twenty thousand years ago, like boreal forests meant Pennsylvania, yeah, not all the way up in the top of Quebec or something. Like yeah. That. yeah, and it seems like they're interesting like black bull warbler that breeds in Alaska, um, winters in Venezuela. But it doesn't fly down the west coast. It'll fly, it'll fly east, and then like to like Newfoundland or Labrador, and then like fly across down over the ocean down. Like, and it's because they must have. Um, the original pattern was. East. Yeah, they must have colonized via the east. And there's a lot of birds. A lot of. Yeah. A, it seems like a lot of the boreal forest has more of an. If you look at range maps, a lot of birds like they'll be in the Appalachians. And then, like in the high in the Adirondacks, and like, in and maybe even down in Pennsylvania, and then they're they kind of go west, north and west, and the, and they don't they're not down the west coast at all. So a lot of the the Bora forest seems to have an affinity for like the east, like has some kind of connection to the east. And these birds, you know, even the birds that are live real far west, or even in Alaska, are still migrating via via the east coast, okay, and not just down the west coast. And something make no sense. They, like redneck phalaropes, um, it's a shorebird that swims okay. and spends the winter at sea, swimming. Like we're a little loopy. Yeah, they things. just they found that they uh, the ones ones in Scotland winter off the coast of Ecuador. <laughs> so and they, they would assume that they would winter off the coast of uh, of uh, Africa because are ones that do. Yeah. But they think that uh, this population was a North American population that colonized. Northern Europe, and it still goes back to their my to the it, original spot. Yeah, it's it's, it's very, it's, you know, we think we know 
you know, we use Arkham's Razor, and, we figure, and we're like, okay, these birds must go just a straight shot south, but then it turns out they're, they're not doing that. Yeah. And it's, they're not taking the most parsimonious course. Yeah. <laughs> and there are new tools that are allowing us to find out a lot of these things. I mean, we use bird banding for a long time to track where individual birds are going between their, you know, summer places and their winter places. But bird banding requires a person finding a bird or capturing a bird <laughs> yeah. in a different place and reporting where it gets it eaten was by captured. a sharpshin hawk somewhere in between. <clears throat> yeah, they have to. That's one yeah, way you can find a band. But now we can put little devices on birds that provide you know, a signal to a satellite or to a cell phone tower, and we can track their movements around the globe. If it's a large enough bird, we can track them by satellite because the, the receptors that or the, the transmitters that need to be put on those birds need to be a certain size. You can't put them on really small birds. But it's allowing us to find out a lot of things about where birds are going, individual birds and populations that we just didn't know before. It's a technological marvel for me because if you think of how big, how small, like these really small, like how much is a... We're, we've been talking about palm warblers, which we're seeing a lot around Philadelphia I think they right weigh now. like... The, as much as is like less than your pocket change, like right. So you have to a few fit, grams. You have to fit some kind of piece of technology on it that won't weigh it down. Yeah, th- those uh, they use um, <coughs> geolocators, which somehow I think like the uh, the substance in there like interacts with the sunlight, and they're able to figure out within like a few dozen miles or so, or hundreds of miles, which is Amazing. enough to you know. To, of of um where the sunlight was can kind of tell you where they were yeah. and that and, and um that that's helping find things like well Matt's lab in, in Delaware uh, state they uh, doing thrush research. yeah Hexter yeah. Um, they found that viries do intertropical mi- migration so well, no one knew that what does that mean so w- they migrate to the tropics to to South America and then within South America they migrate. So they migrate three times. They migrate down to South America, within South America, and then back up. And like a triangle migration. Yeah, thing, I, think. <clears throat> I think probably because these are forest floor birds, and the Amazon floods seasonally, uh, and they got to um, move away from. That's that's, that's their thought, perhaps. That's well, amazing. It's fascinating. There are birds that also do that in North America, like cuckoos. They'll breed in one place, and then they have a midsummer migration to another place where they breed, and. There's so much to learn about what's going on with birds. So with this, hopefully that sets up the whole magic of the process for our listeners who aren't so familiar with it. There's a lot more to learn. Um, I, just for my love of history, uh, I'll point out that uh, in one of my favorite podcasts, which is really a BBC radio show called In Our Time, which is like a variety show of history and other topics, but it is an episode on bird migration, um, which was a partially about actual bird migration, but a lot about the history of bird migration and how, like, for, for, for a long time, people thought, let's say, that some birds spontaneously generated every year because yeah. they couldn't figure out where they would have come from. And then they got the sense that they went somewhere. Or that they, they were, were hibernating. Or they were under hibernating. the mud. Or the, the craziest is the goose barnacle one. Where they came out of, they were generated by barnacles somehow. Yeah, because yeah. the, the long neck barnacles that you know, and that's why they called barnacle geese barnacle geese because they thought they turned into long neck barnacles. And so the, it's, and if you make it sort of makes sense if you think people who who 
who just how are they going to know what's happening in Africa? You know, compared to what's happening in Sweden. <laughs> so they they're like, I don't know where they go. Um, and so learning about bird migration was a really major milestone of biology. And um, now that hopefully you, you're psyched to learn more about migration, we're going to depress you a little bit. Um, but real, real quick, for sure. people who aren't birders, let's talk about like, right now before we even record it, like Keith and I were talking about cool things we saw. And right now, I mean, bird migration doesn't really stop. Right now we're mid-April is when we look at yeah, and and so this is where neotropical migrants really start to pick up. Yeah. Right. So because the insectivores, you know, we're now just getting insects out, and so they're they're now really just starting to arrive. And palm warblers are a little bit more cold hardy, I guess, or I don't know why, but maybe they eat some plant materials. Well, so I'm not exactly sure why, but palm warblers seem to show up earlier. So like the harbinger of the warblers to come. And so we're getting really excited about seeing them. And the vanguard of the warblers. Yeah. Nor the water thrushes are in. I mean, not the Louisiana water thrushes are in and they eat, um, macro vertebrates in the water, like on the water's edge. And so that's really exciting to see. Keep an eye out for those. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's such a great, it, my friend moved to Australia and he was he is bummed because they don't have the migration like we do. There is some migration. They get some birds that migrate all the way. I'm sure birds that migrate all the way down China, to Siberia. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't get nearly what we do. Okay. And there are some nomadic migrations because of water and the dry seasons and stuff. But they don't get what, like what we do. And so every year we get like refreshed and we get excited. Like, you know, the end the very the last week of February, like the first laughing girl shows up and then like in early March the first osprey shows up and and, and even though we see these birds every year and we'll like by June, we'll be like, who cares about an osprey? I want to look for this or that. But when the first one shows up, it, it, it reignites your excitement. Yeah. And and because birds are migrating over these long distances, um, they can show up anywhere. So you, you never know like what will show up in your yard, what will show up where you work, what will show up. So like, you have a bird that's like, you might be really easy to, like, yell the warblers right now. We know right where to go in Jersey to see the, tons of them. But the fact that they're moving through Philly right now is really exciting. You know, you never know what you'll see. I, I've been learning more about birds, and so I, know, I was so really I feel, proud that I saw a, or I did a blue and gray gnat catcher. Yeah, that bird's awesome. They're always like, they're one of the first neotropical migrants to get in, in yeah. like in early April, and I love them because they sound like they're telling you a secret. They're like, psh, 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 psh. <laughs> So um, it's kind of like going to the grocery store, and then you go in and you don't know what's there, and then there's some like, Duck breasts on sale for two fifty. It's like, when did they have duck breasts here? You yeah. know, it just shows up, <laughs> and you say, "This is our red letter day." So birding is kind of like that. Like Tony was saying, you don't you don't know what you're going to see. Sometimes it's something really unusual and rare that you're really happy to see. And then there's other things that are you know common, but they come seasonally. You know, not there all the time. And so what Tony's talking about before he was telling us where. So just for context, where were you seeing these birds? Um. Well, a lot of them I was talking about is my, where I work, College Creek Environmental Center. Which is a, a creek corridor park surrounded by urban. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and, you know, you go from row houses to a narrow band of forest and in my, where I went, and there's a little uh, wetland and full of wood ducks and full of ribbing blackbirds. This is a great spot. And Yeah. The point is that even if you're in a very urban area, just your sliver of green here and there. A decent-sized park next to some railroad tracks, and you've got some trees and some mix of habitat. Then you've you've got a place you can see this migration happening. Aside from the ones migrating through, at some point your chimney splits are going to come back, 
<laughs> and then you'll have um, a migratory bird that's over us, you know, throughout They're already the back. They're already back. I haven't heard my first ones yet, but that's like, I get goosebumps the first time I hear them. That you like look up and go, oh, there they are! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're having a hard time right now because it's been so cold for the last couple of days. Yeah. yeah there's no beetles and moths flying around up there for them yet, but all right, that's, see, that gets me excited when I see the chimney swifts again. Um, so with that, let's listen to, I'm going to stack them one after the other. So we got the interview with Jeff Bueller and Jamie McLaren talking about artificial light at night and how that affects bird migration. And then hearing Nikki Kegel from Duke University talking about their bird window collision research and how people can get involved and how they can use iNaturalist as a citizen science tool um, to collect data on window collisions. My name is Jeff Bueller. I'm an associate professor of wildlife ecology at the University of Delaware. And I'm James McLaren. I'm a visiting fellow postdoc at Environment and Climate Change Canada. But this research took place as a postdoc in Jeff's aeroecology lab at the University of Delaware. If, if we put ourselves in the perspective of a migrating bird, let's say it's flying somewhere from Canada, I don't know, to Panama or Panama back up to Canada, how has the path of its migration changed from its perspective in the past 100, 150 years or so? Well, for one thing, it wouldn't live that long. So, <laughs> but uh, I would say that in the last 150 years in North America, you know, one major change that's happened for migratory birds, especially for nocturnally migrating birds, which are most of the birds that occur in North America, that the amount of artificial light at night has been increasing throughout that time period. Electric lights became widespread about 200 years ago. So probably really in the last 200 years, they've been exposed to this artificial light at night. You know, when you say artificial light at night, my first thought is the actual, when I'm looking at a building and seeing lights on, you know, I'm seeing um, lights in windows or maybe street lights on. Um, is that what we're talking about? Like the immediate appearance or are there more far off or longer distance effects of the light? That's a good question. I, I think um, both effects take place, and certainly our, our study you know, you know, gives some strong evidence that that might, might be what's going on. That you know, uh, we know, we've known for a long time that, that birds, um, and we think especially birds that seem to be in some need of, of, of help in, in finding their way you know, on foggy nights and such can, can run into their uh, you know, uh, brightly lit buildings, lighthouses, and a, a recent wonderful study uh, where they looked at the attribute in light uh, and, and, you know, which showed at the fine scale that, that birds are, can, can be confused and, and distracted and attracted to light, bright light sources. But what we have been finding in this larger scale study is that it seems that it's possible that these birds are being distracted or displaced by light, at, you know, sky glow or, or light at a broader scale. So there's been some experimental work done actually with birds in captivity back in the 80s. They do these experiments where they put these birds in what they call orientation cages. It's just this sort of contraption that the bird sits in 
And when these birds are in what we call Zugenrua or migratory restlessness, they'll actually, because they can't fly at that point, but they'll hop in and be really active and, and sort of move in the direction that they uh, intend to fly at night. And so they've done these experiments where um, they've looked at uh, the orientation of birds in these cages with being exposed to the sky glow of, you know, a nearby city. And what they've found is that particularly for younger birds, that they will show orientation towards the sky glow. So birds will show this positive phototaxis, which is essentially, you know, attraction towards light, just like, you know, moths to a street light. You've been talking about how we know about how birds experimentally are attracted to light sources and how on local levels, like if they're flying, I guess if they see or are flying past a building, we know about them sort of getting drawn in and maybe, I mean, I remember famous, depressing and famous anecdotes, whether it's lighthouses or even Philadelphia City Hall, just like flying around until they're exhausted and just hitting the ground. And we were talking now about the more indirect light sources. Do we have any other evidence that they are being sort of drawn in towards the, the bright lights of the city from far away? I think that there is direct evidence, again, with these very bright light sources, like the Tribute and Lights study that recently came out, showed. But it's really difficult to follow individual migrants, which are so small, in any detailed way. And even if we do, we don't really know what their intended paths precisely are and how and what is causing them to actually possibly divert from that path. So we are using weather surveillance radar, um, which measures birds at a very broad scale and, um, on, on a nightly basis. So we're not following individual birds either. That's what makes this actually quite a diff- difficult thing to, uh, to pinpoint. Even early on at the advent of radar back in the 1940s, some of the first things that physicists saw on their radar screens were birds in the air. And so, um, in fact, some of the first sort of imagery of the of birds on radars, they called angels because they sort of showed up as these arcs of, of reflectivity that sort of resembled the shape of an angel's wings. Here in the U.S., um, there were some early radar ornithologists that started using radar to study migration back in the 60s. And since the um, mid-1990s, the uh, national network of radars was upgraded to this new called WSR-88D, which is the current sort of generation of, in the 1990s, they started collecting data digitally and recording that, you know, archiving all that data digitally. And that's what's really led to the more recent sort of resurgence of interest in radar ornithology because the data have been stored and are easily accessible now. 1995, I think, is when most of the radars in the network were recording data into the archives. Some of the radars go back to the earlier 1990s. We have anywhere, any places where um, you would have had changes in uh, artificial light at night 
on sort of a landscape level in that time period? Are there any places that have gotten a whole lot brighter, a whole lot dimmer, such that you've been able to see how birds might change how they're flying around those places? Yeah, I think most of the areas have gotten brighter since then. There aren't very many places in the U.S., I, I think, that have really gotten dimmer. Um, so, you know, as urban areas get developed, the, the, the artificial light at night has increased. And more recently, just, you know, within the last decade or so, uh, the switch from incandescent and, and um, sort of sodium lights to LED lights uh, being used for street lights and to, to light buildings and things has also increased the brightness of light at night. There's a radar that's located in New Jersey that provides coverage for the city of Philadelphia and also for Cape May, New Jersey. And what was interesting when we analyzed the data from that radar is that the highest densities of birds were in the urban parks of Philadelphia, like Fairmount Park, and not at the tip of New Jersey and Cape May, which if you are an avid birder, you know, that's sort of a mecca of, of birding in the, in the region. And the densities of birds, you know, how, how concentrated they are, you get much higher concentrations of birds in these urban parks in Philadelphia. Initially, my first thought of that kind of thing, hey, neat, look at all these birds that we can, you know, this great density of birds in Philadelphia, but that might not be such a great thing for the birds. Why would it be bad, uh, let's say, for, for a migrating warbler or something like that to end up in a, a park in Philadelphia versus... Well, I, I think there are many reasons why it could be a bad thing. Certainly predation by cats, uh, roadkill, collisions with uh, brightly lit objects. Simply the fact that it's quite possible that birds wouldn't be able to refuel or to gain energy reserves needed for their ongoing migration as well in these urban oases as perhaps in larger extensive forest, typically farther away from these brightly lit cities. You know, we would expect to find this nice linear relationship with forest cover and bird density. And what we're finding is that there's, there's sort of a bump in this relationship in those areas where there's sort of low to moderate amounts of forest cover. So they tend to have relatively more birds than we might expect if it were just a simple linear relationship. And we think that reflects the fact that these birds are being drawn into these urban areas that tend to have less forest cover in them. I mean, in a way, you're kind of describing suburbs. Yeah, the suburbs are are where it's at for a lot of these migratory birds. They don't want to land in a parking lot or you know a shopping center. So they're, they're, what we think is happening is they're being drawn to these cities from relatively far distances. Uh, you know, we saw the effects going out to like 200 kilometers. So, you know, once they get in near the cities and need to find a place to actually land to spend the day, they're, they're sort of then seeking out these forested habitats. So now that we know that there's sort of this draw to birds of the lights of cities, what can we do about it? I look at this and I'm like, yeah, good luck getting people to turn off their lights on the city scale. And then I think, well, is it more a question of mitigating the dangers once they're here? What do you guys think? Yeah, I think both of those things. I think, I think um, it's first and foremost important as in making us aware of, of this possibility and making sure that in you know, conserving 
wildlife, be it in cities or in larger reserves, that that we take artificial light into consideration. And there are these uh, lights out programs in a lot of different cities. I think Toronto might have been the first city that implemented a lights out program where during the migratory season, a lot of these tall buildings uh, agree to, you know, volunteer voluntarily turn their lights off at night. Yeah. And, and one of the other things that we I tend to tell folks is that these urban parks and, and, you know, suburban parks that you can manage them to sort of enhance the quality of, of the habit there, habitat there as much as possible. So things like planting native plants and trying to reduce, you know, the prevalence of non-native plants, because from a sort of a, a food perspective, there's a lot of work that shows that native plants tend to harbor more insects, you know, higher, higher amounts of insects to feed these birds. So they're going to do better if they land in a park that's full of native plants that have lots of insects on them. And also parks that have a lot of structural diversity. So, you know, these parks where it's essentially a lawn with a lot of mature trees growing on it isn't going to be able to offer as many resources as a more natural kind of forest that has an understory and more complexity to the vegetation and which can offer more food. And also planting, you know, fruit-bearing plants, especially for the fall. A lot of these migrants rely on fruits during the fall. Where we can sort of turn this into a positive for, for people is really, you know, for folks to realize that these urban parks are really important habitats for these migrating birds, you know, just for a few months out of the year in the spring and the fall. And for some of these parks, that might be the best time of year to go out and see a large diversity of birds that aren't normally there, you know, for most of the year. So as you, as you probably know, a lot of these urban parks are great for birding during migration. And so, you know, for folks that live in these urban areas that don't really get much exposure to nature, that's one way that you can sort of engage people more with the natural world is to get them out into these parks to see all these birds that are coming through and, and appreciate the, the diversity of birds that are coming through their area. That's about it. I mean, thank you guys okay. very much for taking sure. time out of the evening. Talk to me. Hey, really. Thanks a lot. Good luck with it. So my name is Nicolette Cagle. Everyone calls me Nikki, and I work at Duke University in the Nicholas School of the Environment. I guess I would introduce myself as an ecologist. I was trained as a landscape ecologist, which means that I particularly look at the effects of changes in landscapes and urbanization on animal species composition and abundance. Bird window collisions are probably the second or third largest killer of birds. They kill over a billion birds each year. The only things that we know, at least human-caused bird deaths, the only things that we know cause more are habitat destruction, and it's estimated as the most significant cause of bird death, but we actually don't know the numbers associated with it. And possibly cats, just feral cats killing birds. They kill a tremendous number of birds, particularly in urban areas. And then wind turbines do account for some 
mortality of birds as well. But collisions with buildings kill so many birds every year, probably a billion, and again, it's maybe the second or third largest killer of birds. And those migratory species like warblers and hummingbirds, those are typically the hardest hit. So birds collide with windows for two reasons related to vision. One is that windows are transparent, and the birds are actually trying to fly right through them. They might think that they're they're flying through a forest. They're going to actually fly through the building. They're just going right through. The other is that windows are reflective, and birds see the reflection of trees against the window, and they think they're flying into habitat. They think they're flying into trees. And then the other thing that sometimes attracts birds to urban areas are lights. And this especially happens during migration because light mimics one of their navigational aims, and that would be the stars. There are a couple interesting exceptions to this rule. Sometimes birds collide with windows because they're essentially drunk. So, for example, cedar waxwings feed on fermenting berries, like juniper berries, other types of berries, and they get woozy and they crash into buildings. So that gives a bit of a a background to the problem. And if you want, I could tell you a bit more about what we're doing here at Duke. Please do. So what are you research how are you researching this problem? So to address this problem and make Duke more bird friendly, we've been working on this Duke Bird Window Collision Project. And the project aims to quantify bird collisions on campus and identify problem buildings. And we started to do this through spring and fall carcass surveys, maybe doing this since 2013. I can't remember the year exactly. And also we wanted to raise awareness and then collect local bird window collision reports. And so we've been doing this for a while now. When we first got started, we were part of um, a a one-year-long multi-university study on bird window collisions in North America. And that study was led by researchers at Augustana College in Illinois. And after that one-year study was up, it turned out that of all the other universities in the project, and there are probably something like 40, Duke was the number one bird killer. And we actually got some press about this. Um, we're, the, the local student paper reported it, and our, our Duke Chronicle, the students reported it, and then it got picked up by local news, and then it got picked up even by a few national media outlets. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was great. Duke number one bird killer. But, you know, on, on one hand, it was actually great because this really got the attention of the administration. It made them much more willing to work with us and start to do some retrofitting of buildings that we had identified as, as problem buildings on campus. The research results were quite shocking. Um, in just a year and a half, we documented 100 birds representing 41 species, and 31% of those species were migratory, like those warblers. And that was just during a six-week period each year. So we started to think a little bit, like, why 
do we have such a high bird-wind collision rate? And we presume they had something to do with being in the Atlantic Flyway. There's tons of birds traveling this major migration route. But we're also, we consider ourselves a university in the forest. So the Duke Forest is near to the university campus, and that's 7,000 acres of forest. Just to clarify, so yeah. that means that that forest is a really tempting stopover spot for, for birds and migration. Right. That forest is a tempting spot for them to stop over, and then they encounter buildings. You know, they're, they're not necessarily expecting it. So the other thing that was interesting in our survey is that one building accounted for about 70% of our collisions. Whoa. And so that led to some good ability on our part to say, well, let's target this building. Let's put up um, some fritting or some dotted patterns on the windows to see if we can reduce collisions. So we've continued doing this study throughout the years. Um, we're still getting data to see if um, putting the dotted pattern worked statistically. And what we are seeing is that there's probably a 30-ish percent reduction in mortality, um, but but still we need to analyze that data. Sorry to say, but that that's it. I mean, like, so this is something where um, in in nature writing I've done around Philadelphia, I've I've covered like a, another university, Temple University in Philadelphia, um, putting up window film on particularly problematic windows, um, and so. I had held up much higher hopes than 30%. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So okay. there are a couple a couple mitigating factors here. One is that this building is gigantic. Um, it it takes on a, a tremendous footprint. I wish I had the measurements in front of me, but it, it is a huge building, and we were only able to retrofit some of the windows. There was there's a tunnel, a glass tunnel that the birds were hitting, so we were able to retrofit that and do a few at the top near the entrance ways. But what I suspect is happening is that there are windows that are important in, in that they kill a lot of birds that weren't retrofitted. So it. it may be that that dotted pattern is way more effective than we're seeing. The okay. other thing this led us to do, because the first time we did this, we didn't map out the locations where we found the birds around the buildings. So we knew which building we found them at and what side, north, south, east, or west. But not the exact spot. So recently, me and my colleagues, this includes Scott Winton and Natalia Ocampo-Penuela, uh, we released a study where we actually do heat mapping around each of the buildings to try to target these these mitigation efforts more effectively. So I encountered you guys because I'm curious about using iNaturalist to, to sort of get more people to track where they see dead birds around Philadelphia. Talk a little bit about your Beyond Duke, I guess, iNaturalist uh, data collection. So we've been collecting data in a couple of ways. We have other institutions, um, other universities that have worked with us on this project, and other places local in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina. And we all collect our data using iNaturalist. And the reason that we do that is because iNaturalist is extremely powerful. It allows you to collect GPS data. It allows you to identify the species that you're taking a photograph of. It's a repository that everyone can see, everyone can use. So there's a fantastic tool. 
And because we started using iNaturalist with our own study partners, we opened it up so that anyone nationwide could contribute to the general body of knowledge. What are the what are the benefits um, and drawbacks to to using um, something like iNaturalist for research? Uh, you know, you've got a lot more people, a lot more, um, I guess, labor in a way, but uh, yeah. I can imagine it would be less systematic than you might do um, when you're conducting it with, with trained folks. Yeah. So depending, we have two iNaturalist projects. One, people have to be invited to. And with that one, we have a systematic data protocol that we send out to all of our partners, and we're all collecting data during during a certain period of the year. And so iNaturalist does allow you, in some ways, that flexibility of working together with a small team. For the broader projects, when we're working with essentially citizen scientists across the country, we don't have the ability to have a, a standardized protocol but you get so much data. And there are a lot of models that that we can, statistical models that are available now that allow you to just bring in what we call presence data. So we may not know where there aren't any dead birds, but we do know where we have seen dead birds that are probably called, caused by bird window collision events. Yeah. And so we're able to to make some great landscape-scale predictions about bird window collisions from that data. We haven't done that yet. There have been some some larger landscape uh, papers that have been published that have been more standardized, but that's that's the beauty of iNaturalist is that there's tons of data and endless possibilities. Like Another possibility with iNaturalist, too, is to look when people submit their data and where they submit their data, and then look at the weather patterns around that area and get a sense uh, of how bird window collision mortality is affected by weather, which is hopefully one of the next big projects that we're going to start here at Duke. Just want to shout out to some of my colleagues that have worked on this with me over the years. It's not just been an effort that I've been leading. Natalia Ocampo-Penuela, who's now in Switzerland, uh, actually spearheaded this project at Duke uh, when she was a PhD student. And her now husband, Scott Winton, was integral to the study as well. And we've also had several master's students here that have been involved in collecting and publishing data. All right. Well, thank you very much again for talking. Sure. Thank you. And I'm so glad to uh, get a little more publicity about this topic. Ow! Citizen science! Hi, podcast listeners. That's the end of part one of our bird migration episode. By the way, when you get into iNaturalist, you want to join the project called Bird Window Collisions to make sure that the casualties you document end up with the right researchers.